Our Father, we thank you for your word that, that calls on us to cast our cares upon you. And the reason given there is because you care for us, Lord. We thank you that you care for us. And that's amazing to us because we understand that we are sinners, Lord, that, that what we have earned from you is not your loving care, but your wrath. But because of your great love for us, you sent your son to bear that wrath upon himself. And you sent him to live a righteous life in our place so that um, by virtue of his righteous life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, um, that we can approach you and we can hide ourselves in your son, then that you would see us in your son and be clothed with the righteousness of your son so that we could experience your loving care for us, so that we could take our burdens and cast them upon you, Father. Uh, your word tells us to humble ourselves and to do that. And I'm sure that we have all this morning brought cares into uh, this building. Lord, help us to take those cares and to cast them upon you, to know that you will take care of them, you will bear them for us, so that we need not be distracted by them, but that we can just pay heed to your word this morning, Lord. We ask that you would help us to do that by your spirit at work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to step away from the Psalms today um, just in order to address, and if it's getting a little chilly in here, someone is welcome to turn on the, the thermostat in the back there. I thought I pressed hold, but maybe I didn't, so I'm sorry about that. Um, we just wanted to address a change that our, our church is making. Um, and it might be a change that you've already begun to hear about from the community. And this change has to do with our policy of officiating marriages in this church. And my prayer is that this morning you will see that, that this change is not really a new direction for us. It's just a continuation of heading in the direction we've been heading in, which is just trying to conform ourselves to the Word of God in every single aspect of our lives as a church body. Um, there is a statement in our church constitution that we voted on back in 2018, and it says this right toward the end of uh, the doctrinal statement in that constitution. It says, the pastors and other authorized persons of New Woodstock Community Church shall not perform any marital, baptism, or dedication ceremony for individuals who are committed to a non-biblical lifestyle, such as cohabitation, same-sex, LGBT, etc., um, that they shall not perform those ceremonies on the church grounds, in the building of New Woodstock Community Church, or at any other location requested. And the thinking in that statement there is that we as a church avoid the appearance of evil. That is, we don't want to miscommunicate or misrepresent God to a watching world. We don't want to communicate to others that, that God is placing his stamp of approval upon an unbiblical lifestyle. We want to be clear. And that's not saying that we're against unbelievers marrying each other, but we are saying that even unbelievers are accountable to God and that their marriage ought to be in line with what marriage is, God's defining of what marriage is. And we, the elders, we've been thinking through how ought this commitment 
flesh itself out in the life of the local church? What does that look like? Because when you get right to the practicality of it, it gets a little bit more complicated than what you might just find read in a statement. So we wanted to take some time to demonstrate to you from God's Word why we are becoming more selective in the types of weddings that we're willing to perform. And we wanted to do that so that if any in the community approaches you and say, hey, what's going on with you guys? You can say more than, well, my pastor's a lunatic. You can, <laughs> that might be a valid answer, but we want to equip you more than that. We want you to be able to show them why from the scriptures that we have made certain decisions. So uh, we're just going to ask four questions and we're going to see what the word of God has to say in answer to those four questions. And the first question that we're going to ask is, what is marriage? What is marriage? How did it come about? What is its purpose? And in order to answer that question, we need to start where the Bible does. And that's back in Genesis. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 1, I want you, when you get there, to look at verse 26, which tells us when God created man, it, he tells us the work that God gave man to perform. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see there that God intends for man to represent himself, being made in his image. God intends for man to rule over his creation. And then if you turn to chapter 2, we get some more information on God's creation of mankind. And I want to read from verse 15 through the end of that chapter. Genesis 2, verse 15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
You see in verse 18 that God deems it as not good for a man to be alone. And that seems to imply that alone, Adam would not be able to accurately represent God. Being made in the image of God, that is what he was to do. And alone, he would not be able to do that. It also implies that the work that God gave Adam to do, to rule over all creation, that that would also be something that he would not be able to do alone. And since only Adam was created in the image of God, none of the animals that God had made would be able to match him, complement him. They would not be able to help him suitably because they were not made in the image of God like him. So God took one of Adam's ribs and he created a woman from that part of Adam, a woman who also, like Adam, bore the image of God. God created in Eve another creature who would be capable of being a helper suitable to Adam, and together they would be able to accurately represent God and rule over his creation. And when God made the woman and he presented her to Adam, Adam joyfully acknowledged that this incredible creature standing before him was literally made from him. He says, bone of my bones or bone from my bones, flesh of my flesh taken out of man. And that reality, that oneness between Adam and Eve, it leads to this conclusion that we see in verse 24. For this reason, it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That one flesh union between a man and a woman is based upon the very way that God created and instituted marriage. God made Adam and Eve. He did not make Adam and Eve and Barbara. He made Adam and Eve. He also did not make Adam and Steve. He made Adam and Eve. Adam was a man, not a woman, nor a man who thought he was a woman. Eve was a woman, not a man, nor a woman who thought she was a man. Marriage can only work when it is between one biological man who knows he's a man and one biological woman who knows she's a woman. That is the only possible way that marriage can be a one flesh union the way God intended for it to be. And the first and greatest principle that we draw from this passage is the same principle that Jesus draws from it when you go to Matthew 19 and verse 6. You don't need to turn there. But Jesus, when he's commenting on this very passage, quoting from this very passage, he says this, So they, Adam and Eve, man and wife, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That great principle is that God is the one who joins a husband and a wife together. God is the one who designed and instituted marriage, and God is the only one who joins a man and a woman together and brings about that one flesh union. Man does not have the freedom to make marriage whatever he wants it to be. 
and he does not have the power to bring about a one flesh union between whoever he wants to, to bring it between. Only God can do that. And this one flesh union that we see here in chapter 2 of Genesis, it implies at least two things. First, by virtue of them having a one flesh union, it implies that they will have a level of intimacy that cannot be matched by any other human relationship that they may have. And the second implication of this one flesh union is that they will have a, a level of commitment to one another that cannot be matched by their commitment to any other human relationship, not even their own children. Your spouse is the only one who is one flesh with you. Not your kids, not your friends, not anybody else, your spouse alone. And when you bring someone else into that relationship or you try to modify it to, to your liking, what you do is you pervert that intimacy and you destroy that commitment. And that is an idea, those, those, those two implications of one flesh union intimacy and commitment that is something you see throughout the pages of scripture you see it in how god relates to his people as the husband of his people and i want you to turn to malachi chapter 2 where we see these two implications being fleshed out for us malachi he's he's not italian it's not malachi it's malachi he's the last book of the old testament malachi chapter 2 Malachi chapter 2, and I'll read verses 13 through 16. Malachi, in this book, God is indicting Israel for a number of, of sins that they are committing. And this is just one of them that he touches on in verse 13. He says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion. There you see that intimacy, companion, and your wife by covenant. There you see the commitment. Verse 15, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Verse 14 there speaks of marriage as a covenant. And he says in verse 13 that because they're breaking that covenant, God is not listening to them. He's not offer, uh, accepting their offerings anymore. He says in verse 14 that God will reject the one who unrepentantly breaks covenant with his spouse. He won't hear them. He won't accept them. In the Bible, covenants are the most binding, the most serious relationship 
that you can enter into with someone, and marriage is a covenant. So in marriage, like all covenants, the stakes could not be higher. And just to illustrate this, we've been studying in Sunday school about how Jonathan and David, they entered into a covenant together. It was a covenant of friendship. You see that in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3. It says, Jonathan made a covenant with David. And you don't have to turn there, but when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 20, you begin to see that this covenant begins to cost these men. It's not just some fun thing they did because they liked each other. It was something that down the road began to cost them severely. Because Jonathan's dad, King Saul, began to try to kill David. And Jonathan is locked into this covenant with his friend David. And at first, David, uh, Jonathan doesn't believe that his father Saul could do that. And so him and David talk together and figure out a way to determine whether or not Saul is really trying to kill David. And so Jonathan goes before his father Saul and he talks with him and he finds out that Saul really does want to kill David. But Jonathan has made a covenant with David. Jonathan is loyal to David to the point that Saul turns against even his own son Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't take Saul's side. He takes the side of the one he made a covenant with, and his own father tries to kill him over it. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when you come to verse 12, Jonathan, in re referring to this covenant that he has with his friend, Jonathan calls on God to be witness to the covenantal promise that he made to David. And isn't that what we saw in Malachi? God says, I am witness of this covenant that you, you treacherous husband, have made with your wife. I'm witness. I see that you've broken this. Jonathan calls on God to be that kind of witness between them. And then in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan says this, as they're together trying to figure out if Saul's really trying to kill David. He says, If it please my father... To do you harm. May the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. In essence, Jonathan is pronouncing a curse upon himself. May the Lord harm me, and may he do more than that to me if I don't fulfill the covenant that I made with you. And it's that same seriousness when it comes to marriage. And I don't think. Our society, I know our society at large, has not a glimmer of understanding of that. Our society, we change spouses like we change shoes. We don't understand the level of accountability that we are placing ourselves under before God when we enter into a covenant of marriage with somebody. So that's what marriage is in general. And I could go on and say a whole lot more about that, but I want to get even a little bit more specific and ask the second question. What is Christian marriage? What is Christian marriage? When you are born again by the Spirit of God and you are enabled to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the devil is no longer your king. He's no longer your God. Your king and God is now the Lord Jesus Christ. And as your king, 
Jesus lovingly, for our good, places limits upon us on who he, as our king, will allow us to marry. He places limits upon us. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'll read verses 14 through 18 where we find a general principle here, a limiting principle that the Lord places upon every believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 14 through 18. And Paul here is talking about the kinds of relationships we form when we are pursuing the worship of God, when we are pursuing spiritual goals, seeking to glorify God and to worship Him. There's a principle we need to understand as believers. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, or do not be unequally yoked. With unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, when it comes to the most intimate, the most highly committed relationship that you can enter into with another human being, marriage, do you think that this principle still applies? And I I would hope you would say yes. And in fact, we can prove that it does apply. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 39, the end of the chapter, Paul is giving instruction to widows, uh, to, to women who had a husband, but their husband died, and they're desiring to marry again. He says... A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. There's a lot of freedom there for her, but there's one restriction. He says, only in the Lord. He says, you have to only marry another believer. You can't marry an unbeliever. Only marry in the Lord. So you see this this yoking equal yoking principle even applying to marriage. Now, why is it so important when it comes to believers who are looking to marry? Why is it so important that you marry a fellow believer? Well, think back to Genesis. We saw in Genesis how Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were created to be representatives of God over his creation. And we saw how God gave them the work of exercising dominion over that creation and to do it in perfect unity as one flesh. And when you think about it, that kind of work is impossible to do 
if they were to pursue a plan and a goal that was contrary to God's plan and God's goal. And you could see, you can imagine how it'd be impossible for them to do that if, if Adam and Eve had different goals and they weren't pulling together. They decided, we want to do this, or Eve says, I want to do this. Adam says, I want to do this. They wouldn't get anywhere. And in fact, Genesis 3 shows us what happened when they had different goals than what God had planned. And we're still dealing with the ramifications of that today, sin. Now, when, a, when God joins a Christian man and a Christian woman together in marriage, he has a plan and a goal for them to pursue. Just like he had a plan and a goal for Adam and Eve to pursue, when you as a believer, marry another believer, he has a plan and a goal for you to pursue. And I want to show you what that plan and that goal is. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And this is something that can only be done by someone who is equally yoked to a fellow believer. Ephesians chapter 5. And verse 22 Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband." That passage shows us that God's plan and goal for Christian marriage is for Christian marriage to testify to this world of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride. His bride, who is the church, the body of Christ. The church is one flesh with Christ. And the husband and wife in that one flesh Christian marriage is to represent and communicate that reality to the watching world. And it is hard enough for a believing wife to submit to her husband. I'm sure my wife would testify, you know, Josh is not exactly a thrill to submit to all the time. And it's hard enough for a, a believing husband to sacrificially love and lead his wife. How hard do you think it will be for an unbelieving wife to submit to her husband? How hard do you think it will be for an unbelieving husband to sacrificially love and lead his wife? It won't be hard. It will be impossible because they don't have the Spirit of God to enable them to do that. 
And not only that, but when a believer is married to an unbeliever, that unbelieving spouse becomes a serious, strong source of temptation to the believer to not be faithful to Christ, but to be faithful instead to her, believing, her unbelieving husband. All you have to do is look at the life of King Solomon and what happened when, when he married pagan wives. They led his heart astray. Now, if you're already in that situation with an unbelieving spouse, you as a believer entered into a marriage with an unbelieving spouse, of course God is gracious to forgive you for a, a, a sinful choice in the past. And he's gracious to enable you to still faithfully live for him even in that marriage and to be fruitful for him. So I'm not saying that, you know, your life is over in Christ. It's not. Of course it's not. But is it not better, if you are unmarried seeking a spouse, is it not better to obey the Lord now rather than painfully have to repent later on and, and deal with the consequences of that, that sinful choice? So we've had an overview of marriage and Christian marriage. But now I want to consider with you what is the role of a pastor in marriage. Because I started out talking about this church is making a change in uh, how we officiate weddings. So what is the role of a pastor in marriage? Well, to my knowledge, the Bible doesn't lay out for us specifics on any set way that a marriage ceremony is to be done. Or who is supposed to officiate that? But I think the Bible gives us plenty of principles to help us logically think through what that should be like. And so that's what I want to do with you as we consider this question. So remember back to Genesis 2 and Matthew 19.6, the principle Jesus draws out of Genesis 2. Who did we discover is the ultimate authority in joining a man and a woman together. God. Yep, God is that authority. He is the one doing that. Now we know from the rest of Scripture that in this fallen world, God has raised up different individuals in different spheres of society to be his authoritative representatives and to uphold his standard of righteousness. For example, if you consider the family, who has God uh, delegated authority to in the family to lead that family? Well, it, yes, the, the parents over the children and ultimately, uh, most specifically, the husband, the father. He's the head of the family. We saw that in Ephesians 5. If you broaden the scope out and you consider civil society, who has God delegated authority to? Who, is, who are his ministers to uphold justice and righteousness in civil society? It's the governing authorities, kings, presidents, uh, judges, those sorts of individuals. And you see that in Romans 13. But now consider the sphere of the church. What does the Bible say about who God has delegated authority to in the church, to shepherd his people and to uphold righteousness in his church? Well, for example, in 1 Peter 5, you see it's, the elders, the pastors, the overseers, they are to shepherd the church of God among them, exercising oversight. So these are individuals who represent God, okay? And so when it comes to marriage, in order to communicate to people that God 
is the one joining this husband and wife together, it would make sense to have one of his representatives officiating that marriage. Does that make sense? And it would seem that since the family is that unit of society that the husband and the wife are leaving, okay, it would make sense to have an authority from one of those other two spheres, government or church, officiate that wedding, right? Because they're not under the father's authority, they're, they're forming their own family. So keep following me here. I'm going somewhere with this. Now, unbelievers, they are not a part of the church, right? And believers, though we are in this world, we are subject to the governing authorities, yet we have a higher allegiance. And who is our highest allegiance? It's to the Lord Jesus, right? So in a wedding, if we're trying to communicate those distinctions between unbelievers and believers, if we're trying to communicate those distinctions in the clearest way possible in a, a marriage ceremony, would it not make the most sense to have unbelievers uh, getting married by a government official and believers getting married by a pastor or an elder in the church? I think you can follow the logic there. Now, am I saying that if you are believers and you happen to have a justice of the peace get you married, that that means your marriage is illegitimate? No, of course not. That's not what I'm saying. Your marriage is just as legitimate as any other marriage. Or am I saying that a Christian pastor officiating the wedding of two unbelievers, is that necessarily sinful? No, I don't think that either. That's not what I'm saying. Our state government gives authority, right, to ministers to conduct weddings, even for unbelievers, right? And we acknowledge that even marriage between an unbelieving man and an unbelieving woman, in and of itself, that's still a good thing for society. We would rather have two unbelievers married than just living together, right? Marriage is an expression of God's common grace upon all mankind. But we're thinking about what communicates truth to a watching world most effectively. That's what we're talking about. So when you get right down to it, what is a pastor's role in conducting a wedding? It is to act as the representative of God, the God who alone is the one joining this man and this woman together in marriage. Does that make sense? I hope I'm making sense. That leads us to the, the last question. What does all of this mean for our church? And this is where things get tricky for a Christian pastor. Things I didn't think about until I became a pastor. As pastors testified about himself many times. There's things you don't think about until you realize, I'm going to have to do this. What does the word pastor mean? It means shepherd. And as a pastor, I'm required by God to shepherd his people, his people, right? I'm not required to go and be a governor somewhere. I'm to shepherd God's people. I'm supposed to shepherd them away from their sin. And I'm supposed to shepherd them to the Lord Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. And a pastor, not only is he a shepherd, he's also an elder. He's also an overseer. He's someone to whom Christ has entrusted the care of his bride. He is someone 
whom the Lord Jesus will hold accountable for how he took care of his bride. And what that means is that I cannot just up and marry anyone who comes to me off of the street with no questions asked. It means I have to ask those pesky, probing, difficult questions. It means I need to make sure that I am not unwittingly enabling believers to continue on in sin if, say, they had an unbiblical divorce and they want to get married again to someone else. Or if it's an unbeliever together with a believer looking to get married. I have to make sure that I'm not unequally yoking people together, setting them up for spiritual harm and a life of difficulty. Now when a couple from outside this church who I don't know, they come to me as a Christian pastor and they ask me to officiate their wedding because, say, they like the building. And when I ask them that question, are you both Christians, what are they going to say to me? Because two practicing Muslims are not going to come to me, a Christian pastor, and say, hey, can you get us hitched? Can you marry us? And maybe one time out of a thousand are two self-avowed atheists going to come to me and say, now, we don't believe in God, but neither of us have had an unbiblical divorce, and we would like you to marry us. That's just not going to happen. When I ask, are you both Christians, what, what are they going to say? They're going to say, oh yes, we are both Christians, right? That's what they're going to say, even if they have no understanding of the gospel even if they have no love for Christ, no desire to honor him with their lives, no fruit adding validity to their profession of faith, even if they're living in unrepentant sin, that is what they're going to say because that kind of, of false Christianity is pervading our whole society. So I cannot in good conscience officiate their wedding because I don't know them. I have no shepherding relationship with them. I have no basis upon which to evaluate their profession of faith to me. And so I won't know if I might be going against God by unequally yoking together two people endorsing their sin because I'm representing God. And if God says I, these people should not come together, I don't want to say that is what God is saying, okay? So for me to conduct someone's wedding, I have to have some kind of shepherding relationship with them. And I need to have confidence that either I or another pastor is going to continue to have a shepherding relationship with them down the road, holding them accountable to that most serious vow that they made with each other, covenanting with each other before God. And it's because of that that we are crafting a policy for our church that seeks to just lay out the practical outworkings of this, this biblical reasoning. And it'll be something we can hand to couples and talk with them about and work through with them. And I, I want to acknowledge that to some, this may seem very heavy-handed and unloving. But I hope that I've shown that the scriptural basis for this, that that shows that's not the case. Because we need to ask ourselves the question, is it loving to enable or encourage someone to continue in sin 
Is it loving to turn a blind eye to someone's sin? If you saw my children playing in the middle of the street, and you saw me standing on the sidewalk biting my nails, but not going to get them out of there because I was afraid of offending them, you would call Child Protective Services on me, and I would be deemed unfit to take care of my own children. But that same thing applies to being a pastor. If I am too selfish to have a difficult conversation with someone who's pursuing sin because I do not want to experience the pain of conflict with that person, then I am unfit to shepherd Christ's flock. I'm unfit to watch over his bride. And even more pointedly, if Jesus chose avoiding pain over lovingly laying his life down for us, we would still be dead in our sins. And he's called us to follow in his footsteps and being willing to endure pain for the sake of loving him, for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of loving the lost. And so that is why we are making this change. And we'd love to answer any questions. Myself, Pastor Barney, Owen, um, if you're still unclear on it, just let us know. And uh, we're not going to bite your head off, <laughs> okay? I'm the, the, the most conflict-averse person you're ever going to meet. It makes me sick. So if anything I can do to not cause conflict, I'm going to do that. But I'm more afraid of the Lord Jesus. I do not want to be in conflict with him, okay? So I'm going to do as best I can to follow him. I love him. I fear him. So that's why I'm doing what is painful to me to do. So I hope you understand that. Let's pray.